0: Welcome to Science Fiction Monologues. Have an original work you'd like featured on sci fi monologues? Email me with streams of consciousness, letters, voice messages, or any other monologue style story. Send your written or recorded story to tyler at tylersharris.com. This story is a bit long for a single episode, so we're going to break it up into two parts. Part 1 will be in this episode, and then the next episode will have the conclusion. Enjoy! Pop Shiver by Richard DeCosta. I infected three people on the way to work that morning. I can tell when it strikes by the little shivers, like the kind people sometimes get when they urinate. Three infections, three shivers. Passing it on? Very simple, really. A few carefully chosen words and gestures, and pop. Shiver. Infection. It doesn't work on everyone, of course. Nothing does. Some people see right through it. Look at me, oddly. No matter. On to the next victim. Sometimes it almost catches, but it isn't horseshoes or hand grenades. Usually, it's all or nothing. At least I thought so in the beginning. I can usually spot the good subjects by studying them for a moment. Watching their face, their hands, the way they interact with other people. Busy people are best. People people are good, too. Busy people people, a cinch. They're so open, so willing. Willing to be infected. Pop, shiver. One morning I infected the girl at Coffee by Design. The tall, striking one with a pleasant face that greeted you like a comfortable nook in a favorite library. She was a people person, no question. A pushover when it came to infection. At 8 a.m., when I first saw her, she was very busy and already dead tired. But her smile was no less genuine. Her brief conversations no less real. She enjoyed her work. She enjoyed being around people. Perfect. Large Colombian dark roast, extra cream, no sugar, she said, handing me an enormous cardboard-wrapped cup. Her eye contact was brief, but it was there. Thank you, I replied, locking eyes with her, and executed my routine. Pop, shiver, infection. The second one that morning was what I call a drive-by, even though the victim and I were on the same bus. I was on for just four blocks. Made contact with a sweet, tiny old lady in a grey overcoat sitting between two overstuffed shopping bags. She made her chatter, I made mine, pop, shiver, etc. The third was a collateral infection. I had tried to infect a librarian, something I don't do often. They're tough nuts, no question. Closed books very often. I executed my routine, but even though I could see fairly early it wasn't going to take, I followed through. I don't like attracting attention by stopping mid-sentence. Then, a man behind her, facing the other direction, shivered. Apparently, he had overheard me and seen my reflection in the window. Pop, I thought. I'll take them as they come. I'd been infecting people using my routine for a little over two weeks. When I got home that particular evening... I had several cryptic, slightly unnerving notes waiting for me. They came in typed notes on single sheets of paper, which had been slid under my door. One read, it is growing too fast, be careful. And then another, please stop, they will kill themselves. This one got my attention. Ideas can be dangerous things, and I'd been infecting a lot of people lately. Getting very good and getting very fast. Apparently, I'd caught someone's attention. I could understand the first note, given the context of what I was doing, but the second... They will kill themselves, that didn't make sense. The infection I was spreading was information, nothing more. An impulse to action, like a commercial. There was no actual disease, no real infection. It was just an idea, a simple, stupid idea. The only thing I could think of that might be remotely dangerous about what I was doing was that the infection might be contagious. I didn't program my infection to be contagious, but it was a remote possibility. Even if it was, it was hardly dangerous. Not a meme. Not an idea. The next morning, three days ago, I decided to take the day off from infecting. I would merely observe. I went about my usual routine. Up at 7.30, out the door by 8, walk the single block from Washington Avenue to Congress Street for coffee, go to the library, then to work at Bird's Eye Frozen Food, where I worked as an advertising nobody. Lunch at one city center, or if it was nice out, I'd have a beef eater from Henry VIII's and eat outside in the square. At 5 p.m., I returned home. Not one infection. It's not like it was my job, infecting people, but infections had a way of making me feel I'd accomplished something. Far beyond what a day at work could do, no matter how much copy I wrote. But like I said, I infected no one, and I felt terrible, like I'd let myself down. I slunk down on the couch and turned on the television. Noise, drivel. I flipped through the channels, not watching, not stopping. As I let the images wash over me like dirty dishwater... I was started out of my days by something on one of the many news channels. There was a talking head, you know the type, perfect suit, perfect hair and teeth, perfectly dreadful. This head was saying something about a massive pile up on I-95 just north of Boston. Then I saw what had caught my attention. A man, late 40s in some nondescript street clothes was standing in front of a crowd of people who had exited their vehicles to see what was impeding their progress south. He was doing the routine, my routine. He'd pop one, wait for the shiver, pop another, wait for the shiver, and on and on down the relative front of the crowd, infecting the lot of them. Pop, 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 seemingly without a single miss. The image went back to the studio. Thank yous were given and follow-ups promised. I hit rewind and silently thanked God for whoever had invented rewindable TV. I replayed the footage of the man in front of the crowd. I must have watched it 20 times, maybe 30. It was incredible. So impressed was I by this display, I forgot for a time to be incensed by his theft of my idea. My success rate on a good day was around 50%. Like I said, it just didn't work on everyone. Yet here was this man infecting every person he encountered during the 18 seconds he was on camera. Who knows how many he had infected during the entire course of the actual event? I studied his every move to try to figure out what he was doing that made him so damned infallible. The only conclusion I came to was that it must be something he was saying, since his back was to the camera, and I could neither hear him nor read his lips. Then it hit me. It wasn't what he was doing or saying to the people. It was the people themselves. It was their state of mind. They were gathered at a massive, gruesome accident which was still occurring, Their faces were filled with disbelief, horror, disgust, and in some utter panic. I rewound further, back to the beginning of the entire broadcast. Apparently, this was a massive, violent, bloody, fiery affair that left seven dead and 25 badly injured. News stations were pretty graphic, but they were still not so degraded, or not allowed to be, to show what this crowd was actually seeing. This crowd was wide open. Infection took hold without resistance, because they had none. It was torn down by the carnage they were forcing themselves to witness. After all, which one of us can pass by an accident and not look, even for a second? And out of that crowd, this one man had recognized that openness, consciously or not, and moved in. I was inspired, and not a little jealous. I knew I had made an impact, but until this broadcast, I had no idea of the scope. There I was sitting in my dirty little apartment in Portland, Maine, watching this maestro infect dozens, perhaps hundreds of people with my routine, just outside Boston. A chain of person-to-person infections over a hundred miles long. Then I recalled the collateral infection on the bus and thought that it was probably a good thing this maestro was facing away from the camera and not miked or thousands could have been infected. If only I'd stopped even there, I might have saved us all from the horror of what actually happened but no, I was making myself a very comfortable living off this, and it was fun. By this time in my life, I had already garnered a sizable following in Portland and Boston as an amateur lecturer of hypnosis and NLP, which is just a sophisticated collection of hypnosis tricks, words, phrases, and gestures, plus other secret techniques I'd added in. All in all, they worked spectacularly in getting people to do or not do as I wished. In the beginning, I used it to satisfy my most base desires— like buying gin with no money, or finding easy favor with some of the local women, or my personal favorite, manipulating my boss, with a head full of hot air, golf balls, and not much else. He was practically inviting an infection, so I gave him one. He didn't bother me at work anymore. The others in my department had no idea whatever of how little actual work I did and how much they did for me. Well, suffice it to say, I had a lot of free time at work. So during that free time, I developed a series of NLP techniques that, when combined into one quick but devastating routine, would gently force hundreds of people to donate $2 a week each to me, an amount that no individual would miss or even notice, given my ability, but that when added together would provide me with a nice, comfortable living. After I infected several thousand people, I'd lay low, invest wisely, and retire comfortably at 40. In order for my scheme to work, people had to give without their own knowledge, but they had to somehow know where to send the money. The people I infected donated their money to the Poor of Portland, an unassuming little non-profit entity I had set up. Any bank given five dollars and told to donate it to the Poor of Portland would know what to do with it. To ease my conscience, or so I convinced myself, I donated one percent of my income to the actual poor. What a terrific guy I was. Week 1 of my new scheme brought in $450. Week 2, just over 1400. Not exactly retiring at 40 money, but so far so good. By week 7 I hit a high of 3800. Most of it by then was from 10 and 20 dollar deposits made by people who had no idea they were doing it, God bless them. It was working, but so was I. The problem was the effect would wear off. I had to keep reinfecting people, and that itself became another full-time job. It's like a mental immune system had kicked in. So I spent a week revising my routine so that it would be self-sustaining. I programmed my victims to reinfect themselves every time they looked in a mirror at home, alone, which for most people was once or twice a day, more for the ladies. Once I was satisfied it would work, I spent a whole day infecting people in the city center food court. A week later, after checking my bank balance, I quit my job. That's when I got greedy. You see, after congratulating myself on what a genius I was for making so much money, I decided to add the one thing that would take my little enterprise from local to national. Independent growth. All I had was sustainability. Sure, my little sheep were bringing in the wool, but they weren't bringing in any new sheep. It was time to go viral. I invited a former coworker over for dinner. A chatty girl from marketing named Amy. Not overly attractive, but a rising star in the world of marketing, I was told. I took her to the fanciest restaurant a guy like me could afford without suspicion. And we talked. I say we, but she did most of the work there. Chatty was a bit of an understatement. After twenty nearly uninterrupted minutes of her prattling on, I could take no more and suggested she be quiet. Pattern interrupt, as we say in the NLP trade. She didn't say much from then on except to answer my direct questions. By the time we'd finished the salad, I had all the information I needed. And after a few carefully chosen words and moves on my part, we mutually agreed to call it an early night at my place. Lying next to her in the dark, listening to her snore, I went over the information in my head until I was satisfied I knew how to make it work. The next morning, I tested the new infection, the new routine, on Amy. After several failed attempts over breakfast, it finally stuck. She was now not only a contagion, she was an educator. The new routine I had introduced contained the additional imperative to subconsciously pass on the methods behind the routine itself. It was now self-replicating. It was a true virus. I walked Amy to work, stopping to buy her a coffee. Guess where and from whom? I don't usually expect to see the fruits of my labor so quickly, but pop, shiver. Amy hit my coffee girl with the new routine within the first five seconds of their chat. With coffee girl infected, the whole of downtown Portland soon would be Chatty girls, good girls. Amy was scheduled to attend a marketing seminar in New York City in two days' time. I thought it would be a great opportunity to see just how fast this virus would spread. I knew no other group as effective in influencing, read, infecting people as marketing folks. Several hours after the seminar ended, I was sitting on my couch, laptop on my knees, when a piece of paper slipped under my door. It read, You have crossed the line. Contain this, or there will be trouble. Pop Shiver by Richard DaCosta will conclude in the next episode. Stay tuned.